This morning we're looking at Matthew 17, 1 through 9. <clears throat> After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we begin a three-part series leading to Easter, entitled Prophet, Priest, and King. Obviously a reference to Jesus. Art is interesting, isn't it? It speaks words without words. The images we see resonate in our hearts, in our imaginations, and it enlightens our soul. We are people of more than words and more than arguments and more than propositional statements. We're full human beings. Sometimes in a word-based culture, like our Western society is, we might lose something. We might lose something if we don't focus on images. And we might also lose something if we don't remember the importance of symbolism. As a matter of fact, in our passage this morning, symbolism is huge. Symbolism is not one of the first things we think of when we interpret the Bible. But if you were a first century Christian, Symbolism would be very important. So in the passage that was just read, we find symbolism everywhere. We find pictures accompanied by words. But the pictures, the symbols, have a profound significance. First, notice in the story that was just read from Matthew 17. The symbolism of the mountain. Perhaps it passes us by as contemporary readers, but it ought not to. Because there's deep symbolism in revelation and a mountain. Frequently, the revelation of God came to prophets on a mountain. As a matter of fact, the two prophets mentioned in the passage today, Moses and Elijah, 
are symbolic of two prophets who received special revelations from God on a mountain. On Mount Sinai, God delivers to Moses the words of the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. On another mountain, a mountain of Horeb, Elijah encounters God. That encounter with God is very interesting because the encounter with God comes in a variety of ways, but the voice only comes in one episode. On that mountain, Elijah experiences a strong and a mighty wind. And he expects in the wind, it will be the voice of God. He encounters an earthquake, and he expects in the earthquake, he will hear the voice of God. But in none of those two episodes on the mountain, in that circumstance, does Elijah hear the voice of God. It's after the rumbling and after the strong wind that Elijah hears the voice of God in a still, small voice like a whisper. Jesus stands on the Mount of Transfiguration, symbolically a place of high revelation. But the symbolism is not just about a mountain. The symbolism is about the two people who stand there with him, Elijah and Moses. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the supreme prophet, the one who speaks unequivocally into the life of Israel, sometimes calling for judgment, but always calling for repentance. Jesus stands between those two people. Um, as a matter of fact, this episode, the Mount of Transfiguration, is recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as usual, all those Gospels give us just a little different insight into the passages. So I draw on all those Gospels as I quote these next parts of the story. Jesus standing between the two larger-than-life prophets in the history of Israel. And while he stands there, the story goes like this. Moses and Elijah talked to him. What did they say? One of our gospel authors puts it this way. They spoke about his departure from the earth and the things he was about to experience in Jerusalem. You know where he was going? He was going to Jerusalem to die. A dead Messiah was absolutely contrary to any notion they held dear. But Elijah and Moses talked about events that were upcoming. I'm reminded when I see Elijah and Moses, the supreme lawgiver and the supreme prophet standing with Jesus, he in the center. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus much earlier in Matthew's gospel and in others where he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And in standing between these great historical figures and the Hebrew tradition, Jesus is fulfilling both the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, in his presence on that mountain. It is also symbolic that his position was between them. Front and center stands Jesus. To the right and to the left to stand the two great prophets. But Jesus is front and center, right in the middle of revelation. The culmination of God in the flesh. There's symbolism in the mountain. There's symbolism in two great prophets. And there's symbolism in the radiance of Jesus. Notice the text and how it describes it. As a matter of fact, I I love a particular paraphrase or translation, if you will, that comes from a, a very contemporary version of the Bible called the Passion Translation. I'm not suggesting it's the best translation. I like to read lots of translations. I'm not casting a vote. I'm giving you an expanded idea of what it seemed like to the author Here's the way he put it. As he prayed, says this translator, Jesus' face began to glow until it was a blinding glory streaming from him. His entire body was illuminated with a radiant glory. His brightness became so intense that it made his clothes blinding white like multiple flashes of lightning. Peter, James, and John are beholding the radiance of God. And coming from the tradition that they come from, no doubt they had in mind when they saw it, something like the Shekinah glow of God, the glory of God that had been demonstrated in their Hebrew history over and over again. And the Shekinah glory of God hovered over the temple and the tabernacle. When the Shekinah glory of God was God dwelling in unapproachable light. When the Shekinah glory of God reported in Isaiah chapter 6 and later at the beginning, at the end of our, which is sort of the beginning, at the end of our New Testament in the book of Revelation, when God reveals himself in Jesus Christ, the angelic beings who themselves glow with radiant glory, those angelic beings cover their faces because the brightness of Almighty God, namely the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is too intense. In this story, we have the symbolism of a mountain, symbolism of two great prophets, symbolism of the Shekinah glory of God, and actually one more, the symbolism of a cloud, and in the cloud, the voice of God. That too is something that any Hebrew reader, any disciple who experienced this, would remember in his history. It was a cloud 
that followed the people of God across a barren desert, protecting them from their enemies and giving them the ultimate entrance into the land of Canaan. It was a cloud that covered the tent of meeting and was in the tent of meeting. It was a cloud from where the Ten Commandments were uttered and handed down to Moses. It was a mysterious, luminous cloud that was present in the temple when Solomon dedicated the work of his hands. Yeah, maybe we miss something when we don't focus as much as we ought on symbols. It's all around. But I want you to notice something really earthy in the middle of all these symbols. In the middle of all this radiant glory on the top of this revelatory mountain between the two sterling prophets of old. In the middle of all that, Peter, being Peter, blurts out Wow, this is great, Lord. How about if we build three tents? One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Jesus, as reported, at least, in these passages, was gracious. He might have said, Peter, put a cork in it. Peter, stop talking. That's what you always do. But he did not. So why did Peter say this? Well, some look at it and say, well, he said it coming out of his own tradition, the the Feast of Tabernacles, where you actually would set up booths or tents and dwell in them during the feast. Maybe he was acknowledging that tradition and asking if it was appropriate. But he didn't really ask. He just kind of declared Or maybe, and this seems to be obvious, even from the text itself, he was just overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed and he didn't know what to say. But being Peter, he had to say something. So he just uttered some words. Maybe, just maybe, Peter was trying to grasp the moment. Peter was trying to hold the moment in his hands. Like one wants to hold a memory. Maybe he wanted to stay on the mountaintop with Jesus and Elijah and Moses. Maybe he thought this was the pinnacle of the ministry of the Messiah. I just want to stay here. Let's put up tents. Quite frankly, apart from the fact that we know he just blurted out, as the gospel writer said, because he didn't know what to say, we don't know what the intent of his words or his heart really was. But whatever his intent was, his words, they actually diminished the moment. They reduced it down to size. As a matter of fact, his words, they put Elijah and Moses and Jesus on the same plane. And that was not the point, Peter. Have you ever been like Peter? 
when in the presence of the remarkable power of God, in the presence of the sweet presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you've just blurted out and started talking. Maybe I should say, when's the last time you were like Peter? And maybe I ought to remind myself, especially me, who's always full of words, 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 as my wife once said. I should remind myself that in the presence of God, it is sometimes, and perhaps more often than not, appropriate just to be silent. I love 5.30 or thereabouts every morning because it's in the quietness. My wife and I on two opposite ends of the house spend time with the Lord. We read, we contemplate, we pray, a little later we share. But I have to tell you, this week as I looked at this passage, I thought to myself, words, 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 Bob. Why don't you begin your quiet time truly quiet? Why don't you begin by not trying to take in and understand words and speaking words? Why don't you just, Bob, be quiet and sit in the presence of Jesus? It seems like it would be appropriate. I'm forgetful, but I plan to do it. All of that was symbolism. And now, in the midst of all that symbolism, after Peter just spouts off, God makes a declaration. He says, this is my beloved son. I want you to understand what these three figures are before you. You have the law, and you have the prophets, and you have someone entirely different, a prophet like no other. This is my son. Listen to him. Look at him. In all his radiant glory and in his humanity. This is my son. Listen to him. How often uh, are we quiet enough or reflective enough to listen to him? Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Or is it perhaps true 
that you're allowing your own voice to crowd out his. You're allowing your own agenda to eclipse his. You're allowing the voice of your culture, which is frequently in opposition to the voice of Jesus, you're allowing that voice to overcome his. God says, right here is my son. Listen to him. The application is clear, isn't it? Listen to the Son of God. Or as the Nicene Creed said, listen to very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Listen to that one. Listen to him. Why? Because he's God. Listen to him. Why? Because he's not a word about God. He is the word of God. As the church tried to unwrap, unpackage this incredible symbolism, they did it with words. Thanks be to God. Words like this. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was God. Through Him all things were made. And without Him nothing has been made that's been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of humanity. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. Or another disciple in these words in the past God spoke to us and our ancestors through prophets in many ways but in these last days he's spoken to us let me insert with absolute clarity spoken to us by his son whom he's appointed heir of all things and through him he has made the universe the son this is my son, said the voice. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Listen to him, says God the Father. Hang on his every word. Make it your life's goal to understand Jesus. Study his words as if your life depended upon it, because it does. Follow his words as if they are the living word of God, because they are. Live in him, because living in him is eternal life. Listen to him, says the voice from heaven. Listen to him. To listen to him that way is to love him. Love him because he first loved you. This is my beloved son. In the early days of Christianity, as you know, there was a fair amount of misunderstanding concerning who the Christians were. And not a small amount of persecution. 
On one occasion, a writer named Pliny the Younger was given the responsibility of trying to understand these Christians and send word back to the emperor. And one of the things he penned to help the emperor understand who these Christians were, he said on one occasion, they sang hymns to him as if he were a god. These people are strange. They've got a crucified Lord, and they sang hymns to him as if he were a god. You know, Pliny was right, but he didn't tell the whole story. They didn't just sing hymns to him as if he were God. They proclaimed him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They proclaimed him to be that in the midst of overwhelming odds. Overwhelming odds that we can only imagine. A Roman authority that could squash them like the bug, or so they thought. They proclaimed him King of kings and Lord of lords. I recently returned from a trip, as most of you know, to Turkey. And it was my unbelievable privilege to visit Ephesus and Cappadocia. Or as they say, Cappadocia. And on that visit to Ephesus, I walked down a long I'll just call it highway, that undoubtedly Paul walked up when he landed in a harbor. And at the end of that long highway walkway, it's a gigantic amphitheater that seated 25,000 people. That amphitheater, we think, is mentioned in the book of Ephesus. There were virtually no believers there. It was a gigantic city. I wonder what Paul thought when he walked up that entryway to a grand amphitheater. There was also other things there. He would have seen this or something like it. A temple to Artemis. A temple to Artemis. Grand, imposing, intimidating, and real. If you know the book of Acts, you'll know that that temple of Artemis became a chief point of contention between Paul, the believers, and those who were there in Ephesus. That temple of Artemis, it looks like this today. It's all that remains. It's beautiful. You can see the grandness of an age gone by. I also visited Cappadocia and went from one cave to another in which there were frescoes of the gospel stories and this story. 
I saw in living color, not with words, but with images and symbols, the gospel of Jesus Christ spread out miles across Cappadocia in one cave after another. You know what I also witnessed? I also witnessed the defacement of many of these images. And almost every one of them had the eyes scratched out of them as if to extract the power that was in those images. Why do I bring this up? I bring it up because the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was tiny at that time, has spread all over the world. And Artemis is dead as she ever was. And the Roman Empire is gone. Nothing but ruins. But tens of millions of people all over the world continue to raise shouts of praise to Jesus, the prophet like no other. The one that Paul wrote about and the one we read about out loud. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but rather made himself nothing and became a servant. And being found in fashion or appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even death on the cross which was the worst kind of death the most humiliating death. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is my son. Listen to him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you that in the person of Jesus Christ, you eclipsed every great prophet. And you fulfilled the law and the prophets. We thank you that in the person of Jesus Christ, when God became man and walked among us and suffered the temptations we suffer, we thank you that that same Lord Jesus Christ died a criminal's death. And that criminal's death became the glory of the world. It transformed our world. It transformed us. So, Lord... Let us recommit ourselves with all the passion of our being to hear those words once again. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In his name we pray. Amen.